Commitment. What a word. Recently, we asked a group of participants to define commitment for us, and they came up with the following responses. Consistency, loyalty, never-ending, devotion, all-in, do it until you finish, discipline, settling down. Some people said commitment is something I'm not good at, something that causes me to sweat profusely, something old people do. Their words, not mine. When asked why one cannot commit, participants gave the following responses or excuses. I'll think about it. I'll do it tomorrow. Not now, maybe later. I'm too tired. I'm too busy. I'm not ready. I'm waiting for something better. Let me check my calendar. Let me check my pa- with my parents. Let me pray about it. What if it's not what I want? What if I want to change, but I can't? What if I can't do it? What if it's the wrong decision? What if there's something better out there? IDK, FOMO, F-O-M-O, they just don't get me, I just don't get them, and some said commitment is just not for me. It has been a long time since we talked, hasn't it? How's the new job? It's, It's good, it's good. It's a little challenging right now, but I'm finding my place in it. So, how about you? How's your new job? It could be better. They have me working outpatient. <laughs> and you know what I really want is to be working in the pediatric ward because kids are more my style. Yay! Yay. And the patients complain all the time. I, I wish they were more like... Wow, that medicine you gave me made me feel really good. You are so fun, Dr. Carlson. You're my favorite. And my coworkers are super sexist, and, and we just fail as working as a team all the time. I wish they would say something more like... It's a pleasure to work for you, Dr. Carlson. I respect you as a woman and my superior. <laughs> Coffee? Yeah, I just don't think it's for me. I'm looking for another job. What? You said you were going to stick with this one for at least a year. Yeah, but it's just not the one. Where'd you get that coffee? Um, anyway, how are things with Anthony? Uh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask. What happened? Oh, I don't know. It's just like a lot of things, I guess. He's a nice one. I like him. Are you sure you're not being super picky because you're afraid of getting married because your parents got divorced? No, it's not. Of course not. It's, I don't know, it's just not working right now. What? First of all, we're getting in a lot, like we're getting in arguments, which isn't good, right? It's, it's normal to fight sometimes. Well, when we're, when we're fighting, I'm like, okay, Anthony, like, let's, let's talk about this. Let's resolve this right now. And he'll be like, I just need more time. I need some time to think about it. Enjoy your drinks, ladies. <laughs> anyway, um, it's just not working for me. Well, they say there's always more fish in the sea. Oh, shoot, Who it's it? my mom. She's been on me for like a month to go to this family reunion, and you know who is going to be there. Ah, uh, your brother. Yep. You guys still haven't talked. Nope, but conveniently I'm scheduled at a training out of town that weekend, so I'm going to get out of it. Mom! Oh, she lives. I've been trying and trying to get a hold of you, and you never answer. Yeah, Mom, you know work's been busy. Okay, okay. So did you get the plane ticket yet? Yeah. Hang on a second. You guys, quiet down. I'm trying to talk to 
Katie and I can't even hear her. You're talking to okay, Katie? What were you saying? I want to talk to Katie. Mom, can I please talk okay, to Katie? We're trying to figure something really serious out, so no. Please, 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 please. Okay, fine. But give me the phone when you're done and don't hang up. Okay. Hi, Katie. Rachel, hey. Hi, I am so excited for the family reunion. Yeah. We're gonna play games and watch boring movies and go on long walks yeah, in the woods. Yeah, yeah about and that, Rach. I'm really busy with work right now, but maybe I'll be there. Okay, mom's telling me to get off her phone, so bye, Katie. Bye, Rach. Oh. Rach, <laughs> you hung up the phone. Mom? What happened? Well. That was convenient. What? She hung up on me. Oh, God. That was so stressful. It's my family. Hey, what time is it, by the way? Um, quarter two. Should we maybe get going? I don't know. I, oh, I've been putting this project off for like a week, and I really, really want to finish it. I think I'm going to go home. If you're not going, I'm not going. Oh, maybe can I text you in like an hour? We can maybe go to the later service? Or... Maybe we can just go to church next week. Yeah, let's do that. Next, next week. week. Next week. Give it up for the creative team. We are blessed with some extremely good writers and actors and actresses here, aren't we? And uh, what do you think about that worship service? That worship service we do, man, I, I got, I don't know about you, I, I just felt blessed. I, I just felt the presence of God. It was, it was powerful. I'm Greg. I'm a teaching pastor here at Wilderness Church. It's really good to see you all here this morning and, and be a part of this. Uh, so we're starting this new series. Um, we live in this age where, as we just saw illustrated in this play, uh, commitments are hard to come by. There's a hesitancy to commit, at least to commit in a real deep way. And part of the reason is because we have so many options. We live in a world of possibilities. Uh, all the marketers say, you got to give people choices. We, 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 we're used to choices. We like choices. And that's one of the reasons why we have trouble committing to one, because, you know, something better might come along. And even when we sort of commit to something, we're often looking to see how we can trade up on it. Uh, we're, what we're going to see in this series, Worth the Risk, it's called, is that... Uh, that mindset, where we're always kind of chasing possibilities and uh, looking to maximize what works for us and, and trading up, that mindset really adversely affects our walk with God, probably in ways that most of us aren't aware of. And we're going to see that committing to things, committing to people, being passionate in our commitments is a central part of the call of God in our life. And so this is something that we really need to take very, very seriously. I'll be getting to some passages here in a little bit, but... Um, first, I want to do this. It, it's a well-known fact that Woodland Hills is just a super smart and, and super modest church. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and our parishioners are super smart, too. So we're going to start with a mini philosophy class here. Uh, I want to talk about uh, a eccentric Christian Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. Over in Denmark, they pronounce it Soren Kierkegaard. But Kierkegaard is easier, and I don't want to spit on you. So we'll, we'll go with Kierkegaard. And... Uh, uh, this, this guy lived from 1811 to 1855. He died at the age of 42. He was always kind of sickly. Um, but in that short life of his, he wrote 34 books. And uh, plus he has like four huge volumes of journal entries. And he has a lot to say about passion and commitment. 
I, I really got into him as a senior in high school. That, that's when my neurons started connecting in my brain. And I uh, discovered, yeah, I had just become a Christian, so I finally found something interesting and worth reading. And so I started to just read voluminously, and, and Kierkegaard was one of the folks I found. And I, I, I kind of became obsessed with him. I mean, for the next three years, I read almost everything he wrote, including his four volumes of journals. I even sort of took on this persona. You know, I'm 18, 19, 20 years old, and you're still kind of forming your identity. And I was so into Kierkegaard that I sort of saw myself as a modern Kierkegaard, um, which wasn't altogether good because he had a, uh, it was a rather odd fellow, very odd fellow, had a melancholic streak that runs, ran through his life and through some of his writings. And, and he was so introspective, he kind of drove himself crazy. Uh, and so for those Three years, only for those three years, however, I was a little bit odd and a little bit weird and turned in on myself. After that, I got normal. So uh, it, I was really into Kierkegaard. Uh, he's the father of, or the founder of a school of thought called existentialism. And uh, in this philosophy, and he didn't, wouldn't approve of all the directions that existentialism went after his life. Uh, for him, it was synonymous with his Christianity, and it went in some real non-Christian directions. But uh, the, the core conviction of existentialism and of Soren Kierkegaard, is that we only become our authentic selves through commitments, through passionate commitments. It's not like we first have a self that then commits to the various things. We become the self that we really are by our commitments and only through our commitments. Um, he has a famous quote called, "Truth." It's, it's, it goes, truth is subjectivity. Everybody say that. Truth is subjectivity. Tell it to your friends, and they'll think you're really smart. Truth is subjectivity. Now, when he, by that, he doesn't mean that truth is subjective, like we all get to define our own truth. Uh, some later existentialists took it in that direction, but for Kierkegaard, that's not what it meant. When he says truth is subjectivity, he means this. The most profound truths in life, and the truth about who you are as a person, and the truth about, about you know, God and, and all the interesting things in life, that, those kind of truths can only be known subjectively. Uh, they're only known by committing to things and committing to people and living that out passionately. You've got to be on the inside of these things in order to really discover their truth. Uh, it's when you take them and make them part of your own subjectivity, which means part of your own inner world, part of your life, that's when you know the truth of these things, and there's no other way to know these truths. So for example, uh, Kierkegaard rightly saw that love Love isn't the kind of thing you can know objectively. You can't know it as a bystander, as, as an observer. Uh, you, can't, you can't really know what love is by reading a book or doing a social experiment. You can get the definition of love, but you don't really know what love is. That you only come to know through passionate commitment. By committing to love somebody, you grow in your understanding of what love is. And the more passionate you are in your commitment, the more profound your knowledge of love will be. Or the truths of Christianity. He, he said that you can't know the love of God revealed in Christ, for example. You can't know that in an objective way, uh, by hearing a sermon or reading a book. You can only know that by passionately committing to Christ. And the deeper your passion, the more you'll come to know that reality. Truth is subjectivity. Some things you've got to be on the inside of to really understand. And so we only become our true selves. We only find out who we are and find out what life's about, find out what it is to be fully alive, find out what love is and find out what, what God is through commitment, through passionate commitments. Now, here's the thing. Since you don't know the truth, the deep truth about love or anything else until you commit to it, and because you don't know, always know that your commitments, in fact, you never really know that your commitments are going to turn out the way you maybe hoped they would turn out, for that reason, there's always a risk Risk is inherent in commitment. Um, 
this brings to what's probably his most famous phrase. He calls it the leap of faith. There's a leap involved uh, when you commit to something because you have to leap in the face of uncertainty. Uh, here's another quote of his. He says, To dare is to lose one's footing for a moment, but to not dare or to not risk is to lose oneself. When, when you take a risk to dare, you lose your footing for a moment. You're not on solid ground. It's not stable because you're not quite sure how this is going to turn out. But to not take that risk because you like security and you just want to play it safe like a lot of people do, to not do that, in his view, is to lose your very self because, again, you only come to know your authentic self through passionate commitments. And so there's this leap involved, the leap of faith, commitment in the face of uncertainty. It doesn't mean that faith is inherently, inherently irrational, though there are some commentators who, who think that's what Kierkegaard was saying, but they're wrong. He's not saying it's inherently irrational or inherently against reason. But a leap of faith always goes beyond reason. So if you're thinking about marrying that fiancé of yours, and if they're your fiancé, you probably are thinking about marrying them, uh, hopefully that's not an irrational choice. Hopefully you've got reasons for doing that that are good, but the reasons are not the marriage. To enter into a marriage, you have to commit, and that goes way beyond your reasons for committing. There's a leap involved in that. One other thing I'll mention about Kierkegaard's views. He said that what makes commitment difficult, what makes this leap of faith difficult, is you've got to leap in one direction when you could leap in a bunch of other directions. There's all these possibilities, and yet you have to choose one. And that produces in us, he says, a, a sort of anxiety, a kind of a fear. Because you're not sure this is the right one. Of all the people on the planet that you could choose to marry, you're going you're to lock in your life on this one. What if the perfect person comes along tomorrow or next week? And so there's, as you consider the possibilities, and yet you have to choose one that creates an anxiety. So he says this. He says, anxiety is the fear of freedom. It really is up to you. Have you ever had decisions to make that you wish that someone else would make? It's like, I, I wish that someone else would just do this. But it's up to you, and, and that creates anxiety. Some more than others. Some people's brains are like ping pong balls on every decision they got to make. What color do I want to get to the bedroom? And, and they, they endlessly torment themselves. But all of us, as we face these kind of possibilities, they have a certain kind of anxiety about it, a fear about it. Another quote of his, he says that nothing is as heady as the wine of possibility. I love that. Uh, as we look at possibilities, it's, it can make our heads spin like you just drank a little too much wine. Uh, it can be overwhelming. Nothing is as heady as the wine of possibilities. I, I think one of the reasons why we have so much headiness going on today is because we drink of so much wine. We have the wine of possibility all around us. We have this anxiety because there's so many options, an age of options, choices, choices. You know, think about it. In the past, go back far enough, and in some cultures yet to this day, people didn't have to stress out about who they're going to marry. It was arranged. Your parents told you you were going to marry. No stress. Now, personally, I'm glad that you get to choose. But it is one thing you got to think about. It occupies brain space, and, uh, and it causes stress. Back in the day, uh, most folks didn't have to wonder about what church they're going to go to or wonder about what job they're going to have or wonder about where they're going to live because there just weren't many options. These days, you know, you got a million churches to choose from. So you move to a new area, and you got to go through all that stressful work of, of, of checking them out and, and, and seeing which one's got the best kids program and, and, and best preacher or whatever, and, and, and that can cause stress. Um, uh, you don't have to stay in the same job. There's the possibility that you can move, change jobs. Lots of people change vocations, but that's one more thing to think about. And so you're kind of wondering about that. Should I get out of this job? Should I get that new job? And it's, it, it, it can cause stress. 
Where, where you live. The average uh, person now, I read in Western culture, moves 11 or to 12 times in their lifetime. Um, yeah, so you don't have to stay here. And so every January, half Minnesotans are saying, well, should we move to Florida? And, and that's one more thing to think about. It can cross stress. There's pros, there's cons. You got to, you know, it takes some brain space. But it's, it's not just about marriage and, and where you live and jobs and stuff. We've got choices coming out the Kazakh. It's all over the place. You go to the supermarket. There's 97 brands of Wheaties and 42 kinds of different pickles and 118 kinds of mustard. And it's like all these options. Honey, will you go pick up some toothpaste? Well, which of the thousand do you want me to pick up? And so this is, we're overwhelmed with these options, these choices. And that can cause stress. And in a world that's full of options and choices, people can begin to uh, not only have stress, but to fear committing to any one particular thing. Because you don't know that that's right. And what Kierkegaard would say is that in a world like that, where people are always chasing after possibilities and weighing options and looking to trade up, in a world like that, people are going to have trouble discovering truth. Because truth is subjectivity. Truth you find only when you commit and are passionate in living out that commitment. And this is the kind of world we live in. Now, the foundation that drives the possibility-chasing machine, the foundation of that, and it drives our anxiety, and it drives our, our fear of commitment, uh, at the foundation of it all is a false view, a false understanding of what it is to be a self. And this takes us to the first story of the Bible, which addresses the most fundamental issue of life, which is why I teach out of this passage quite a bit. It's found in Genesis chapter 3. Listen to this. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, was it really? And pleasing to the eye, hmm, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. Yikes! So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. All right, so this is the foundational covenant God has with humanity. It's based on two things, a, a, a provision and a prohibition. It's represented by these two trees, and the two trees are in the middle of the garden, which means that life in Eden, life as God intends it, revolves around these two things, trusting God for the provision and honoring the prohibition. The provision is the tree of life. God says, trust us, trust me for life. I, I want to be the source of your life. But there also is this honoring of the prohibition. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It, 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 God's basically saying this. Um, I want you to be like me in my image in terms of how you love. Love each other and love the earth and the animal kingdom. Be like me in that. But don't try to be like me in terms of what you think you know. Don't, don't try to be like me in thinking that you can discern accurately and define good and evil. Uh, leave that to me, because the minute you start to think that you can discern good and evil, you become judges, and when you're judging, you can't love. So trust my provision for life and honor the prohibition not to try to be omniscient like me. Leave all judgment to me. Um, and the life that God wants us to trust him for is not just biological life. Uh, he, is, he wants to give us fullness of life, life abundantly, fullness of life. And that consists of this. We're created with this inner need, a non-negotiable need, 
to feel like we're loved, to feel like we, our life is significant, that we have worth, and to feel like we're secure in that. We need that. And God creates us with that need because God wants to meet that need. Um, and, and, and he is to be our only source for our core sense of well-being. When we have those needs met, we feel fully alive. And God wants to be the source of all that. So the serpent comes along and he introduces a new possibility. He's the first out-of-the-box possibility thinker. Eve, did you ever consider this option? Uh, you know, you don't, you don't have to just be where you're at. In fact, where you're at is beneath you. You could do better. You could be more. There's something you can do, something you can get, something you can, can, can experience, something you can accomplish that's going to complete you, that's going to make you the full person that, 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 that you were really meant to be, that's going to actualize all of your potentiality, uh, that's going to give you fullness of life. It's falling right there on the tree. And the minute, start, the minute Eve starts to consider and believe that option, um, well, she's no longer trusting God for life. And so she's starting to get hungry. And the hungrier she gets, the better that tree looks. Uh, you know, something looks appetizing to the degree that you're starving. And you get hungry enough and bugs start to look appetizing, so I'm told. I've never actually tried them or anything. But, uh, and so, so, yeah, so she looks at this tree and it's desirable. Oh, it can make me eyes. Oh, it's good for food. Oh, it's delicious. And, and I, I, I'm sure she wouldn't be seeing it as that if she was looking at, at it through eyes of fullness. But she's looking at it through eyes of emptiness. And so she takes of this fruit and eats of it. And this is, for, folks, this story expresses the origin of the fallen human condition. This is the story of our lives. This is the situation that we're in. The lie is that God is not enough. The lie is that just being a human being in relationship with God is not enough. The fullness of life isn't to be found in that. The lie is that you're on your own. If you want to be fully alive, fully awake, uh, live life to the fullest, then there's something you've got to do and something you've got to get and something you've got to experience and something that you've got to accomplish. That's the lie. And if we believe that, like, what, 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 today, these days, we call that self-actualization. I'm sure you've heard that term. You need to actualize yourself. I've got to become a fully me. I have to find my true self. I've got to complete myself. I want to have the, 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 my best life now. I want to live life to the max. Self-actualization. And see, the minute we believe that, we become the center of the universe. What's going to drive us now is this quest for self-actualization, maximizing all that we can be. And, and everything in the world will become a sort of means to that end. It, 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 everything exists to work for me. And, uh, and that's the criteria by which I'll, I, I will evaluate everything. I'm the center of the universe. And if we hold to that view, then we will only, follow this, we only will commit to things to the degree that they work for us. If they stop working for us, well, then we move on. Which means, if you think about it, we're not committing at all. We don't commit to anything outside of ourselves. Not really, because what we're committed to is our own self-actualization. If something helps in doing that, well, then we'll be committed to that as a means of being committed to our own self-actualization. But as soon as it stops, well, we're on to something else. And so we talk this way sometimes. You hear people say, well, it just wasn't working for me. It just wasn't working for me. I, you know, I, my marriage was okay for a while. Uh, but I, I, grew, I grew past it. I, I, it wasn't fulfilling me. It wasn't actualizing me. I wasn't my true self. In fact, I felt my true self was being suppressed in this thing. And, and so the minute you start thinking that, you're starting to look to trade up. You're, you're looking at the world with hungry eyes. Are there other possibilities? Are there other options? You know, maybe that person over there would really complete me. Or maybe the option comes to you. Yeah, you're slogging along in your kind of mediocre marriage, and all of a sudden you go to some place and you meet this guy or you meet this gal, and oh, 
they just get you right off the bat. They just get you. They understand you. Uh, they, they just make you feel fully alive. You haven't felt like this for years. You're, you're new. It's just, they complete you. Oh, it's just oh, such connection. We have the same frequency. My wife doesn't understand me, but you get me so well. She laughs at my jokes, for crying out loud. And so you trade up out of the one, trading up to another. Um, that's what you do when you're the center of the universe. Things stop working for you, you stop working for it. And, and see, here's the thing. Since nothing ultimately works for us, because nothing fills that void in our soul, nothing, nothing ever fills us, it means that we're always looking to trade up. We're always hungry. We're always looking for better options. We're always looking for something that will work for us a little bit better. People live their lives like that. And that, of course, affects our Christian walk. Uh, if you're the center of the universe looking at the world through hunger eyes, chasing after possibilities, well, Jesus becomes just one more of the many things in your life that help fulfill you. Jesus is there to work for you. And, 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 uh, uh, and so he gives you a little bit of peace and he helps you be assured of the afterlife or whatever. Uh, but there's other things that, that, that also you rely on to complete you, to fill you, to give you a sense of life. And at best, what that does is it means our, our allegiance is divided. Uh, our, our heart is in more than one place. And that means, if Kierkegaard's right, that we only know the truth of something to the degree that we're fully committed to it, it means you'll never know, as long as you're divided, you'll never know, you'll never, you'll never take into your own subjectivity, you'll never make part of your own narrative, you'll never really get the full meaning of what it is to be loved by the God revealed in Jesus Christ and transformed by the God revealed in Jesus Christ. You're never going to know that in a real profound way. But it also means this, that if something comes along that works for you a little better than Jesus, you'll find a way to trade up. Uh, and we're very clever at the way we do this, uh, how we reconcile that with our faith, but we trade up. So you get involved in a sexual relationship that you know that God doesn't approve of because it's not in the marriage context, but the guy just so completes you, or the girl just so makes you feel fully alive and you just can't resist it. So what are you going to do here? Well, I don't want to get rid of Jesus. That, he really helps me in this area. So, you know, uh, maybe... What does fornication really mean anyways? I mean, it's kind of an ambiguous word. You know, you can, uh, what is it? or adultery, what does that really mean? So you find, we find gymnastic, mental gymnastics ways of getting around things. Or maybe you just do something like this. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to, I'll forget about God for a little bit, and I'll ask for forgiveness after we get married, on something you're going to get married. Um, people use that trick sometimes. Or sometimes they just walk away from the faith. And just, I've had people tell me, Christianity has stopped working for me. And, and it was because something better came along. And to have this, I have to get rid of this. And so they trade up, but really they're trading down. This is, folks, what the Garden of Eden story is all about. Uh, we become possibility chasers, looking to trade up. And what drives us is that we're hungry. And the reason we're hungry is that we're not getting our life from God. And so we live this life in this world of possibility entertainment. And the thing that really adds intensity to this what makes this really intense is that the vast majority of people live in a mental narrative that ends with death. They may believe in the afterlife in some way, but it's a theoretical belief. It's not really inside them. It's not really part of their reality. It's not really real to them. So the narrative they live in ends with death. And that puts pressure on everything because the clock is ticking. The train is picking up speed. And so people are even more inclined to bail on commitments and to trade up. I mean, how much time are you going to put into this difficult marriage when the guy at the office, the gal at the office, could, could, he, seems like they could really complete you better and you're a full human being with them. And, and how much time do you want to invest in this thing and the clock is ticking? You know, you're, you're, uh, your market value is going down. You're not as hot as you were 10 years ago. And, and you know, so this is the time to act. You could, you could catch the best fish right now and the best fish are available now. 10 years, they might be gone. So, you know, it puts pressure on us to bail on things. 
Because we want our best life now. We want it now. Because the assumption is this is the one shot we've got. Don't you deserve the best in this life to live it to the max right here and now? This is, this is the one shot we got. And so we bail on commitments. Folks, what we need to lock in, and we need to lock it in really solid, lock it in hard, lock it in permanent, permanently, is that the whole, the, the assumption that you're going to find your true self and fullness of life by what you can do and what you can get and what you can experience and what you can accomplish, that whole idea that you're going to f- find fulfillment in doing stuff is a lie. It's a crap of, or it's a load of caca. It, it's, it's out of the pit of hell. It's a tremendous lie. It's the all-time great human screw-upper. Yeah, it's the assumption that, 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 that just screws up everything. Um, we'll, we'll be chasing after possibilities all of our life because nothing ultimately fulfills that. Kierkegaard was so right when he said that if you want to find your true self and find out what life is really about and find out what God's really about, you commit 100% with passion to walking in the way of Christ. And the truth of that you can only know after you commit. You've got to walk in this to begin to experience it. He was so right. Jesus put it this way. He said that the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in the field. And this guy finds this treasure, so he hides it again. And then in his joy, he goes out and he sells everything that he's got in order to buy the whole field. To acquire the kingdom, you have to sell everything. And notice Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's not like this is what the kingdom requires for some people. No, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's what the kingdom of heaven is like for everybody. It's what the kingdom of heaven is like at all times. To enter into this kingdom, we have to sell all. Now, he's not saying literally, like we have to purchase our way into the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying here is this. It's only when we rid ourselves of chasing after all the treasures the world offers that we can find the treasure of the kingdom of God. It's only when we die to chasing after all the possibilities, trying to find our full self and the complete life and all that, only when we die that whole rat race, exhausting, futile game, only then are we in a position where now Christ can fill us with all of his life. Only when we die to the false self are you going to find that true self. And only when you quit trying to actualize all your potentiality can you let God actualize you. Only when you stop chasing after possibilities will you find what you've been chasing for all along. And that's the fullness of life that Christ offers. Only when we stop the, the game, quit the game of trading up altogether, are we in a position where now God can fill us up. Uh, the true life we've hungry, that we're hungry for, that fuels all of our seeking, all of our chasing, the true life we want is found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We are made for God and by God, and he's the only one who can fill us. Amen. He's the only one who can fill us. Now, here, here's the last thing I want to say about this, and it's an important thing, and that is this. Only when we are full of life from Christ, when our sense of well-being and purpose and meaning and significance and security comes out of our relationship with Christ, knowing that what God thinks about me is revealed on Calvary. And when that's the source of, of my worth and significance, only then am I in a position to really live out the radical call of Jesus. Only then can I live the risky, committed life that he calls me to. What was it that fueled Paul, that motivated Paul to, he gave up a really cushy, comfortable, respectable life as a Pharisee, and he becomes this missionary, and it's a dangerous job, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of hardship. What would lead a person to do that? And he tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, it's the love of Christ that compels me. The love that he got from Christ and the love he has for Christ, well, that, 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 he was willing to sell all to have this treasure. And when you sold all, you, never, you no longer have to worry about risking all. You can risk all when you no longer have all to risk. You know, so he, he died to that. 
His, his, his old life, he says in Philippians 3, it was, it was scubala, that, that the Greek word. It means excrement. He regarded it as trash. It's worthless. It's futile. It's, it doesn't give us anything. And so now he's in a position where he can passionately follow the call of God to become this missionary. And folks, that's the key for all of us. Everything that Jesus taught presupposes that we're getting our life from him. And it's impossible to live it out if we're not getting all of our life from him because there'll be other options pulling on us that will compromise it. So a couple of examples. You're in a difficult marriage. Well, if you're full of life in Christ, you're empowered and freed to stay in that difficult marriage and keep working at it because you know, and, and, and you're risking the possibility that you're never going to have a spectacular marriage, you know, that fireworks marriage that you hear about in front of Hollywood. You, you, maybe you're not going to have that in this life. But if you're full of life from Christ, you're willing to do that because you know that what makes a life worth living is not a spectacular marriage. You, you don't need a spectacular marriage to feel like you're fully alive. You get fully alive through Christ, which now empowers you to work at having a spectacular marriage. And the other thing is this, that if you're getting all your life from Christ, see, you know that that life is eternal life. That's unending life. And so this life here and now, the whole of it, is nothing but a little pinhead on a line that extends out into eternity. And so if you have to suffer a little bit on this pinhead, well, from an eternal perspective, it's not that big. So you're willing to do it. But see, if you're hungry, if you're hungry, you're walking around and empty, and, and you're living in a narrative that ends with death, well, this becomes intolerable. Here you are in this difficult marriage, the clock is ticking, your real estate value is going down, and there's all these other possibilities out here saying, trade up for me, trade up for me. And you commit yourself that you'd be so happy and complete and fulfilled and wonderful with this other thing. Well, that becomes really difficult to stay in this difficult marriage. To, to, to honor that commitment, you've got to be getting all of your life from Christ. Um, or maybe God calls you to downsize, as he does some people here. He calls you uh, to downsize, uh, to downsize your standard of living so that you free up more funds to give to the kingdom and to give to the poor. Well, if your life is full from Christ, that's something you're willing to do because you're not clinging to your, your, your wealth and your comfort as a source of life. Um, and you know this story goes on forever and you'll get riches, uh, riches in heaven soon enough. And so you don't cling to this, so if God calls you to do that, you do that. But if you're living on empty... Well, that, this just maybe isn't going to work for you. This deals, you know, it's not really going to work for you because you really need that house and you need those three cars and you need that cabin and you need the boat and all the rest because that's part of what makes you feel fully alive. You're having your best life now. Following Jesus it presupposes that we are getting all of our life from Christ. Or if God calls you to do something that other people are going to, it's going to judge as weird, just odd, what an oddball. Um, well, if you're full of life in Christ, you're able to do that because you don't give a rip what people think. You don't get life from that. Uh, but see, if you're walking on empty, what people think can be very important, and so you're going to be hesitant to do that. Or, or if, if, uh, if God calls you to go out on a dangerous mission field like he did with Paul, a danger, become a, da a missionary to a, in a country that's going to be dangerous. Well, if you're full of life in Christ, you know this story lasts forever, and so you're willing to do this, and you don't get wealth from your comfort and your convenience and, 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 and all of that, so you're willing to let that go. Willing to let that go. You've already died to that. It's not a source of life to you. But if you're walking around empty and you're hungry, well, getting up and hauling your family over to this country where it's going to be dangerous, that's not going to work for you. It's just not going to work for you because everything's supposed to work for you. You're the criteria for what it is, what it means to work, right? And, and, and why would you give up this to go for that? No, you, you want your best life now. If you're, if you're full of life in Christ and God calls you, as he calls all of us, to enter into relationships with people of, uh, from a different culture, people of a different ethnicity, if you're full of life in Christ, 
you're willing to do that because you don't get life from the safety and security of the familiarity of your own comfort. You're willing to go out of your comfort zone because you're not trying to get it all now. But if you're living on empty and looking at the world with hungry eyes and trying to you know, have your completed self now, well, this probably is not going to work for you. Why would you inconvenience yourself with that? It can be kind of awkward. Uh, you, know, you, you, you won't understand some things. And so you're more inclined to say no to this. Uh, if someone threatens your life, this is a big one. If someone threatens your life, if you're full of life in Christ, and you know this thing goes on forever, and you're living in that narrative, you're not, it's not just a theoretical belief, you live in this narrative, it's part of your subjectivity, truth is subjectivity, the meaning of eternal life is only found when you live in that narrative. Uh, well, the, if, if you are full of life in Christ, you don't have to hate this guy, and you don't have to kill him to protect yourself, which is what Jesus commands of us. In fact, if you're full of life in Christ, you're empowered, you're free to love this person and bless this person. Why? Because you're not clinging to your life. You're not clinging to this pinhead because you know the pinhead is just the first dot in a line that goes on forever. And so you don't need to cling to this. Uh, and you have this fullness of life that you can express to this person. But if you're hungry, if you're walking around empty you're, and, and you buy into this lie that, that, that this is it right here, you got one shot and you got to grab all the actualization that you can get, you will do anything and everything that you have to do to protect yourself from that person, and you'll kill them if you need to. We can't follow the radical teachings of Jesus unless we're getting fullness of life that's found in Jesus Christ. It's, it's that way with everything. You, you, if you're full of life in Christ, you can say no to that ungodly relationship. And maybe it'll be hard because you're really you're into the person, but you'll say no to it because you know that fullness of life isn't found in any particular human relationship. Right? So, so you can say no to that. But if, 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 in fact, this person, you're looking to them to complete you, to fulfill you, to actualize you, to give you your best life now, well, then you'll find it impossible to say no to that. And finally, if, 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 you're, if you're walking in fullness of life in Christ, well, then you don't have to rip up your family and move someplace every time there's a better job offer that gives you more money and a higher position. But see, if you're, if you're walking around empty, um, well, that will work for you. That position will really work for you. And, and you're going to find it very hard to say no to that, even if it's going to really traumatize your kids and, and, and put tension in your marriage. You say, I, I've known people who had every, every opportunity they had, they just moved wherever they had to because uh, they're climbing that ladder of success because they're hungry. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, why so many people in our culture don't have deep, profound friendships. Because um, we're so transient. We're always moving. Uh, and so it, it, one of the reasons we don't, we're hesitant to fully commit to a, a friendship is because we know everyone's kind of transient and they could go at the next job offer and it hurts a lot when you have to say goodbye to someone that you were deeply committed to. So let's just keep things kind of casual, right? And so you have a lot of surface of relationships, a lot of acquaintances, but no really profoundly deep friendships. I, I, I was with my small group uh, the other day, so some of the folks in my small group, folks we've shared life with for 20 years, and we just re-upped our commitment to one another, and we said we, we, are, we are for each other and with each other for life. Um, and that is such a rewarding, blessed thing. And now some of us in this group have had to say no to some really lucrative job offers in order to stay in that same locale. And, and, and one person in our group has had to take a serious, serious cut in pay and revamp their whole life because of their commitment to stay with this group. But see, without that kind of commitment, um, you, truth is subjectivity. You'll never know the joy and the fullness of having profound friends unless you're willing to make that commitment and live it out with passion. Amen? Amen.
And I am I, not saying, okay, I'm not saying that it's wrong. Somebody here just moved here because the job got relocated. Now they're feeling guilty. I'm not saying that every, it's always wrong to say no to job offers that are going to require re relocating. And I'm not saying that every friendship is supposed to, you know, be a, a lifelong friendship. But I am saying this. If we are going to leave this group of friends to look for a new group of friends, or if we're going to relocate, our motivation can't be because we got a better deal somewhere. Our motivation can't be because we're trading up. Found somebody that's a little better friend than you. Or found a job that's a little better. we got to opt out of that whole trade-up game, that what works for me game, what's in it for me game. We, we, we have to die to that. If we move or if we change friends, our motivation's got to be because we felt led by God to do that. That's our one kingdom motivation. We felt called by God and we processed that with our family and we processed that with our friends. Come to the conclusion that God is in this. Well, that's a good motive to change. But this, this trade-up deal, the what's in it for me deal, is something that we've just got to die for, uh, die to. If we're hungry, we'll always look at the world as potential food and we'll be starving for it. And we'll look at everything in terms of what works for us. It's only when we are full of life in Christ that we can follow the radical call of God to live committed, passionate lives that swim upstream. We can only say, we'll only be empowered to say yes to what the world says no to and no to what the world says yes to if we're full of life in Christ. Only if you've already died to it all are you willing to risk it all because that's really not a risk at all. Oh, that came out just right. Someone write that down. Seriously, I, that, that, that gem wasn't the first two services. Only if, you're, only if you've died to it all or you're willing to risk it all because it's not a risk at all. That, I like that. That's good. That's, somebody tweet that. All right. So, folks, I, I, I want to end with this question. And here we need to be honest. Holy Spirit, help us to be honest. And sometimes that's the hardest thing because we are so good at deceiving ourselves. So, Holy Spirit, help us be honest. I'll give you one more Kierkegaard quote. I promise this is the last one. He says, dare to face, face the facts of being what you are, for that is what changes what you are. You have to be able to look at reality if you're going to change reality. So let's look at this real. Uh, are you full of life from Christ? Is, is Christ the source of your self-esteem, self-worth? What makes you feel good about living? You know what God thinks about you as revealed on the cross. Is that the source of your lovability, significance, worth, and security? Or are you walking around hungry? Do you live life with hungry eyes? Now, here's several ways of getting at that, to get honest. Ask yourself the question, do you think about possibilities a lot? Are you, are you in fact, looking to trade up? Like, oh, that would be better than what I have now. Is that a part of your mindset a lot? And if it is, you might notice that there's a stress that you always have because you're stressing out over all these possibilities. Are you restless? person who's hungry is restless because you're always thinking other options. You're a possibility ch chaser. Um, another question you can ask yourself is this. Are you feeding off of things that you know God doesn't approve of? That's a sign of being hungry. Are you in a relationship that you know you're not supposed to be in? You're feeding something there. And I say that not to indict anybody or convict anybody, but it's just like notice that you're hungry. And more important than saying you ought not to do that is to say you don't need to do that if you'll just get the right food. You're only eating this food that damages your health because you're not eating the healthy food. The healthy food is Jesus. Are there things in your life that you feed off of that you know that God doesn't approve of? Or here's another way of getting at this question of whether we're empty or not. Be honest. How deep are your commitments? I know a lot of folks who think their commitments are deep, 
But as soon as a better deal comes along, they trade up, which means what they were really committed to was not what they thought they were committed to. They were committed to their own actualization, their own fulfillment. How deep are your commitments? Ask this question. What would it take for you to trade up? What would it take for you to trade up on your marriage? That perfect fit person out there, which doesn't exist, by the way, but the enemy will get you to think it exists. That perfect person who can complete you. And, you know, how, what would it take to trade up? How hot or how wealthy or how whatever would they have to be? And be honest about that. Uh, what would it take for you to trade up on your church? How committed are you to your church, whether it's this church or a different church? How committed are you? What would it take to trade up? If God calls you elsewhere, that's fine, if you're sure it's God's calling you. But would you trade up if a better show came into town? Someone had a little better kids program or had a lot better preacher, for example. Uh, or, you know, what, what, what would it take to trade up? How deep is the commitment? Is, is your commitment only as deep as what works for you? That's the issue. How about your friends? What would it take to trade up on your friends? How, how committed are you to particular friends in your life? If that job offer came, would you say, sorry, this is over. Something that works for me better came along. It's okay to take that if God's leading you to take that, but trading up is just not a legitimate kingdom reason to break commitments with anything. How committed are you? Which then leads to this question. Um, are you willing to sell all to gain the treasure of the kingdom? Because that's what the kingdom always looks like, and that's what the kingdom looks like for everybody. We have to sell all. Only because Paul was willing to sell off everything was he empowered to follow God and becoming a missionary that led to inconvenience and pain and danger. But he's willing to do it. Are you willing to sell all? Only when we sell all are we in a position to obey all. And so if, if and this is what it is to be a disciple, because this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. And so it, are you willing to sell off all? To die to chasing after the possibilities. It means you stop making yourself the center of the universe, looking at the universe with hungry eyes, and you start making Christ the center of the universe. And it requires dying to everything, but the kingdom delivers so much more because this, folks, this is fullness of life. And it's the only fullness out there. So if that is your heart, I want you to pray this prayer with me. And this is the kind of prayer that we need to pray all the time. Like, you're not full because you were full last week. A relationship with God is like a relationship with, with, with anyone. It has to be maintained. We have to drink fullness of life from him all the time. The minute we stop, we, it's like, it's great that you had a, great, a full meal last night, but you're hungry today if you haven't eaten yet. You know, we need to be feasting on God on a regular basis, basking in his love, letting him fill us up. And so this is the kind of prayer. Uh, pray this with me. Amen. Pray this prayer with me. Uh, you don't have to say it out loud, but, but in your heart. Father, forgive us, first of all. Forgive us for the ways that we chase after false food, looking for a false self, trying to do things on our own, trying to attain things on our own that you want to give us for free. Forgive us for our hungry eyes and for not trusting you continually for our source of life. Uh, but Father, thank you for providing for us this treasure that's found in Christ Jesus, this unending eternal treasure. And right now, I commit to saying no to all the possibilities, no to the trade-up game, no to the work-for-me game. I say no to, to trying to find any element of fullness in this, the things that this world offers. And I commit to finding all my core need for love and worth 
significance and security in you and in you alone. I pursue you and you alone. My eyes are on you and you alone. Fill me with your love and your life. I can manifest that to the world and live out of fullness rather than emptiness. Live life as a celebration rather than an act of desperation, trying to get full. In Jesus' name. And if you agreed with that prayer, say amen. Amen. All right. Praise God. Praise God. The treasure in Christ. If you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, I encourage you to come up here and, uh, at the, by the stairs. Up here, there'll be some uh, prayer teams, and they would love to pray with you. If you prayed that, that commitment for the first time this morning, or if you're interested in what it means to become a follower of Jesus, come up here and talk to these folks. They'd love to talk with you guys. God bless you guys. Go out and live out of fullness, not emptiness. Amen.